Welcome to the Real Clear Defense Podcast Hot Wash. I'm John Sorensen, and I am joined, as usual, by RCD editor David Craig. David, how are you doing? Good. How are y'all doing? Good. Today, we are speaking with Real Clear Defense contributor Andrew Bush. He's the Crown Professor of Government at Claremont McKenna College and co-author of Divided We Stand, The 2020 Elections and American Politics. But his recent commentary for Real Clear Defense is titled... The Consequences of Failure, The Politics of Saigon and Kabul. Andrew Bush, welcome to Hot Wash. Thank you, John. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Andrew, in your piece, you compare the recent withdrawal from Afghanistan with the fall of Saigon in 1975 and look at their respective political consequences. Uh, President Biden, in the lead up to the withdrawal from Afghanistan, promised we wouldn't be seeing the dramatic images of Saigon with helicopters evacuating the embassy, refugees clinging to planes, etc. Unfortunately, that's exactly what happened. How is the comparison between Kabul and Saigon valid? And where does that analogy lead us astray? Okay. Uh, well, you know, in the in the most obvious sense, it's it's a it's a valid comparison insofar as uh, in both cases, uh, the United States, uh, the allies of the United States collapsed uh, under uh, assault from enemies of the United States, and uh, the U.S. was uh, was forced to evacuate people uh, hurriedly. Um, there were scenes of chaos, uh, scenes of tragedy, right? Uh, uh, those those things uh, it, it has in in common. Uh, President Biden, when he was vice president, had suggested that if there was um, no, uh, you know, if the U.S. Uh, withdrew from Afghanistan and the Afghan government fell, uh, that there would be no real political consequence uh, for uh, the president. And I think that was his assumption uh, going into this. There's still kind of a mixed. Yeah, he said that to Richard Holbrook, the, who was yes. the, the special representative to Afghanistan at the right. time. Yeah, and, and right. the the quote that's from Holbrook's journal is "F that we don't have to worry about it. We did it in Vietnam. Nixon, Nixon and Kissinger got away with it." Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, he's he very dismissive of the political consequences. Right, right. Uh, so I would say where they're where they're different, at least so far, is that uh, President Biden has in fact suffered some significant political damage from it in a way that. Uh, President Ford uh, did not uh, in the in the short run, uh, and you know we'll we'll have to see what happens going forward. Uh, I think there was kind of damage uh, that uh, that Ford suffered in the long run. Uh, we can talk about that uh, maybe uh, later, but uh, right now um, Biden is probably wondering what happened. <laughs> right. Right. His, uh, right. His, his scenario did not, uh, did not pan out so far in the short run. Yeah. I mean, the, I mean, the other difference of course, is that the, the war had officially ended in Vietnam. The, mm-hmm. the fall of Saigon is two years post that date. So right. Nixon and Kissinger did get away with it to a certain degree. Nixon of course had his own issues. Uh, Kissinger still was regarded highly in a lot of, uh, uh, communities. He's a pretty divisive figure, though. Uh, but the but the same aspect is that we built up a uh, indigenous army that was highly dependent on U.S. air power, and uh, when Congress 
diminished the support over those two years from from 73 to 75, uh, it became clear that the South Vietnamese just couldn't they couldn't maintain the air, air you know the, the helicopters that they really had built um, their strategy kind of emulating the US strategy while they were there. Uh, and when the, it was clear the North Vietnamese were massing to to uh, invade, it was it was clear that then it was really more the the, the Democratic Congress as opposed to the mm-hmm. president that that was right. saying we, we we won't provide additional support. Right, which I think is one reason, uh, one of several, that uh, the effects on Biden have been more severe politically uh, so far than they were for Ford. Uh, Ford really suffered no. Uh, no negative um, uh, effects politically in the short run in terms of public opinion polls or anything like that. Um, and I think part of that is because it wasn't really his defeat, right? He, uh, right? he went to a joint session of Congress. He asked them for $722 million in emergency military aid uh, for South Vietnam, and uh, he was turned down. So uh, in, in President Biden's case, he, he made the call. It was, uh, it was his decision, uh, not Congress's. Right, following on by the process that had been started by President Trump. Yes, right. Let's take a look specifically at his approval. The RCP poll average has Biden's job approval currently at forty-five point one approve, forty-seven point nine percent disapprove. That's a that's a two point eight net negative. Those two lines of approval and disapproval had had been heading in that direction pretty steadily since the election, but that approval and disapproval cross right around August 21st, really in in the middle of when it was absolutely clear to everyone that this withdrawal was not, uh, was not really going the way that Biden had sold it. Those lines have basically continued in that same trend. I mean, how do you disaggregate the specifics of, of, that that normal trend that occurs of of you know when a president takes office, the more people get to know him, the the, the less they tend to approve uh, <laughs> right. um, uh, from from kind of the specific events of this. Yeah, it's uh, it, it's not it's not that easy to disaggregate if all you're doing is looking at the overall approval uh, rating. Uh, there are at least at least two other things that are going on. Uh, that have been driving uh, him down, one of them being the um, immigration situation on the border uh, with Texas, and the other being COVID uh, and the fact that it has not been vanquished in uh, quite the way that had been uh, promised. But uh, if you look at some of the polling on um, Afghanistan specifically, uh, it's it's quite unfavorable in terms of um, views of the with, uh, of the operation of the withdrawal. Now, uh, if there's, uh, you know, there's a lot of polling evidence that most Americans preferred to get out, um, but uh, the evidence is, is pretty strong right now that they didn't like the way it happened. And, uh, and as you said, the, the lines crossed, uh, you know, pretty, pretty sharply. The, you're right, there had been a kind of downward gradual trend but it definitely accelerated in August, uh, and uh, and I think uh, uh, connected to Afghanistan. Yeah, those referring to kind of the difference in opinion between approval for withdrawal versus the handling of it. Uh, Real Clear Opinion Research recently did a poll and found overall fifty four percent 
in favor of the withdrawal, 38% against. Uh, obviously, as one might expect, the biggest split was between Democrats and Republicans, with well over 80% of Democrats supporting the withdrawal and less than 30% of Republicans. Now, this poll was taken after the withdrawal was complete. And although it didn't specifically ask the question, did you approve or disapprove of the way it was handled? The question was asked, was your disapproval uh, connected to the following reasons? You know, and the, and, you know, 40% said that those that opposed the withdrawal said it was because of the failed execution. So that's pretty clearly connecting to what you were describing about the difference between the approval for the policy versus the handling. But it still has that real strong difference, uh, you know, cutting along party lines. As I'd mentioned earlier, the policy was originally initiated under Trump. Trump took really important steps that set the stage for what Biden did. Obviously, Biden decided to continue with that policy and the way that he did it. uh, He he owns that. He was he was president and commander in chief at the time. Uh, but, you know, how much of this is just yet another aspect of our divided society that that if Trump had done this and if he'd been the guy and, and you know, by any reasonable guess, things would not have gone rosily, would these numbers basically have been inverted? I think to a degree. Yeah, I, I think uh, I think to a degree. In fact, um, you know, it was remarkable to me. Uh, the energy that a lot of Republicans put into trying to distinguish uh, Trump's policy from from Biden's that somehow if Trump had been president, uh, he would have done this totally differently. And in a lot of ways, I think from a, you know, the the human tragedy of what happened at the airport, the bombing at the airport, all of that, uh, you know, it's conceivable that that could have been uh, avoided or some of that could have been avoided. But um, I think it's it's really um, not correct to think that the major strategic problem that we're facing would be any different. Uh, the major strategic problem we're facing is that the Taliban controls Afghanistan again, right? Right. And that right. that was going to happen uh, uh, under Biden or or Trump uh, as long as Trump went ahead with the plan that he he said he was going to to pursue. So, um, so I do think there's a certain partisan element to it. Uh, and then what you have to do is kind of look at the uh, look at the independents, right? And the the independents are not impressed with with this. So that's that's really what uh, tilts the uh, the overall numbers, right? And all, all those numbers have kind of a, a large gap of undecideds and and uh, independents, as you said, being really conflicted on on how all of this played out. I want to circle back to the the larger strategic ramifications, but I, I wanted to narrow in on. Uh, some of these refugees, uh, both the SIVs, the people who worked for the U.S. in various capacities as translators and supporting the U.S. military there, but also just the massive Afghan refugee population that we're likely to see not just in the U.S., but all around the world following this. For perspective, in that immediate fall of Saigon, there was something like the last 24 hours, there were 7,000 people evacuated with chopper pilots running 19-hour shifts. But over the following two decades, most of the boat people kind of left in that immediate aftermath. But you know, over the next two decades, the U.S. admitted a million uh, Vietnamese refugees. And I think it did not go smoothly all the time. Today, we've got 3 million Vietnamese Americans that largely came from that period. Right. 
Do you think that the support for the withdrawal policy is going to, in the long run, translate into support for the refugees? Or how do you see the opinion tangled up with the way that the withdrawal was handled and how the Afghanistan policy was handled? How do you see that shaping how Americans deal with uh, Afghan refugees coming to the U.S.? Yeah, that's a that's a good question, and I think it. Uh, I think there will definitely be uh, moments of tension, right? Areas where uh, there's some tension. That's almost always the case. You think about the uh, the, the Mariel uh, boat lift of the Cubans in 1980, and there were there were lots of tensions uh, around some of the camps where they were temporarily located, uh, and so I think it's unrealistic to expect that there won't be uh, some of that. I think part of it is going to depend on um, on the refugees themselves. And uh, uh, I mentioned in my uh, in my article that, that one of several uh, long-term things that could keep this issue in people's minds and could potentially uh, continue uh, hurting President Biden in terms of public opinion is if there are uh, significant numbers of episodes of um, of these uh, of these refugees, um, uh, you know, committing crimes, or uh, perhaps some of them are uh, certainly not most, but perhaps a few of them are uh, are actually Taliban who have been smuggled in. You know, maybe maybe there are uh, terrorist events that come out of this. It's it's very hard to predict right now, but uh, there is a certain amount of risk there, and well, you know, I, I don't know which way it's going to go, but. Um, uh, I think people's attitude toward the refugees will depend a lot on things like that. Right. And, and right now it seems like it's cutting again, largely by party affiliation, the pre-existing bias pro or, or against immigration seems to be uh, coloring how people approach embracing uh, large numbers of, of people coming to the U S and, and I think, think some of that is, uh, is based on the media that people watch as well. It's sort of partly their, pre-existing attitudes, but uh, also, you know, if you're watching MSNBC, let's see, they're not talking a lot about uh, the possibility of, uh, uh, you know, Taliban or Al-Qaeda terrorists being smuggled in with these folks. If you're watching Fox News, they're talking a lot more about that. Right. Uh, right. And so... Well, and like you said, like, a, you know, a, a, a stabbing or domestic abuse or rape, you know, mm-hmm. taking place at one of the uh, the intake camps can become instantaneously right. a, a point of media focus, regardless of whether that's, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about populations now of hundreds of thousands of people, you know, and those right. occurrences are well below the averages in the American population. That's, mm-hmm. that's, that's mm-hmm. not something that really gets put in context necessarily right. with, with your news. Well, let's, let's pivot to some of the, the geopolitics and the, the consequences and thinking about it in terms of, the, the historical con- consequences following Vietnam uh, versus what we anticipate uh, out of Afghanistan. Uh, David, how do, what do you see already as some of the consequences that uh, are, are following on from the, the rapid withdrawal from Afghanistan? <clears throat> A lot of the military and veteran community, of course, are upset at how the military handled it. But then, of course, we had the, the hearings this last week. Um, which abdicated some of the responsibility. It was pretty clear that the recommendation ran in stark contrast to what 
President Biden had said previously to where there was no opposition to his plan. Um, and then they there was also somewhat of a dogfight between DOD and the State Department. Uh, but the State Department really hasn't come out with any statements on this either, which is kind of interesting. Um, and the other thing that isn't brought up very often is the fact that although President Biden claims that he followed Trump's plan and or, or agreement with the Taliban, he really didn't because it was actually conditions-based. And the Taliban had only met one of the three conditions. Uh, so I don't know if he wants to use the Trump excuse. That really wasn't necessarily a valid one either because <clears throat> they had to set up an arrangement with the Afghan government, which they didn't do. Um, and it, and it just kind of goes on from there. And then, um, many people harken back to, uh, I can't, the national Jake Sullivan and his heirs during the Obama administration with the Iran nuclear deal. He was negotiating that before it was even made public. Um, and we acquiesced to Iran in regards to Syria in regards to Maliki remaining as prime minister in Iraq. And then carry on over to this Afghanistan withdrawal. And I think people have grave concerns going forward if another crisis were to occur. What, what do you think about that, Andrew? Uh, yeah, no, I think that, um, well, I've told my wife, I, I, I would not want to be living in Taiwan, Ukraine, or the Baltics right now. <laughs> uh, because I, I think the president has, uh, of course, inadvertently, uh, but in a very real sense, nevertheless, uh, painted a target on their backs. Because I, I think there's a there's a question out there now, uh, and our allies have talked about this. Um, uh, some of our adversaries have talked about this. There's a perception out there that uh, President Biden is not serious about upholding U.S. commitments to its allies. And uh, that's a very dangerous situation. That's very dangerous. And I think, you know, we see. Well, I mean, I, I, I mean, unfortunately, that's that's the story of your piece is that is that the U.S. has a real historical problem with maintaining its its promises to its allies. We had the same exact problem with the South Vietnamese. We, President Trump, had the same problems with the the Kurds when uh, he pulled out abruptly from the region. Um, so, uh, you know, if if you were if the U.S. was getting involved in your neck of the woods and made you promises, I I, I think you would be well advised to to think about all of these historical. Uh, instances where where the U.S. once it's gone, it's gone. It it, it pulls out, and the American people do not want to think about, uh, especially if if it ends badly. Andrew, one of the things you point out in the piece is uh, potential consequences. I mean, you just alluded to it that the U.S. is uh, not willing to uh, put itself out there uh, in the same way uh, following the withdrawal from Afghanistan. You know, what, what are the kind of near-term ramifications that we've seen already from some of the threats around the globe? Well, you know, one thing that has, has happened is that um, uh, China has become uh, more aggressive uh, toward Taiwan. Uh, and they actually did refer to Afghanistan. They said, well, you know, the Taiwanese better watch out because uh, if they're depending on the Americans, look what happened in Afghanistan. Uh, and um, they have, uh, in recent weeks, been ramping up their uh, uh, air incursions um, 
of uh, Taiwanese uh, airspace. And so, uh, you know, it's hard to say whether that will lead to a, a full-scale uh, invasion, but, um, you know, even if it doesn't, they're throwing their weight around with a very different sort of um, understanding of the risks involved uh, than, than they had a year ago. David, what have you seen from uh, around the globe? Uh, are other conflicts around the globe? Well, not necessarily potential threats, but the way the AUK-US a- a- uh, nuclear submarine deal went down. And it wasn't necessarily that it was a bad thing overall. It's just the lack of coordination with France uh, that re- really, it's felt that we really burned a bridge there because France is also an incredibly important ally in terms of uh, the Indo-Pacific and the South China Sea. The the U.S. entered into an agreement with Australia to sell them a nuclear-powered submarine, not not a nuclear-capable, yeah. Along with the United Kingdom. And the difference in the deal is one cost, and then also we'll we'll be giving them the technology for the nuclear-powered subs as well. But we could have done something with France to sort of negate the loss of this contract, you know, like someone recommended potentially buying some of the French submarines and donating them to Vietnam, for example. But immediately after the withdrawal was when most of the harshest criticisms came and it really wasn't much coverage. I had to look in European press for that. And that was pretty stark and immediate. Um, I think a lot of our European allies are definitely greatly concerned um, they're trying to advocate. In fact, I think Lithuania would like us to set up a base there. Uh, probably won't happen, but uh, we'll see. Um, but definitely NATO has felt the need to go it alone, so to speak. And, and because of the AUK-US deal, Macron has advocated to reinvigorate the European defense uh, as a solo entity separate from NATO. So, Andrew, whenever the U.S. has a negative outcome like this, I'm, I'm just thinking of following Vietnam. We we entered into a, a period of contraction in foreign affairs, you know, followed again by a more more of an expansion, a more aggressive period. But it really only lasted what one presidential cycle. I mean, it's you know, 75 is Saigon, Carter is 76 to 80. Reagan comes to power largely on a much more uh, on a platform of a much more aggressive foreign policy uh, towards the Soviet Union. We, do you see the U.S. moving into a period of contraction uh, following Afghanistan in its in its foreign affairs? And if so, do you think that's going to last longer or shorter? Or uh, what do you see happening in the long run after after Afghanistan? Uh, yeah, I I think that uh, I think that we are going to enter into a period of contraction uh, for a time, um, and I, I think it's a little different than than Vietnam in the sense that I think that the contraction was a result of Vietnam, uh, whereas now I think Afghanistan was a result of the contraction. <laughs> that is to say, I think there was already that's a good way of putting a, it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, a sense of. Um, uh, and this, despite the fact that people come down on party lines and judging these things, there was a kind of bipartisan 
uh, widespread agreement uh, that the U.S. Uh, needed to pull back for different reasons. You know, different people have different reasons, but uh, and Afghanistan was kind of the, the result of that. Uh, certainly, it could not be said that the the Taliban pushed the U.S. out of Afghanistan. Uh, I mean, we could have maintained that presence. Uh, indefinitely. Uh, so I, I think there's a kind of contraction already underway of which Afghanistan was a symptom. Uh, and it's going to last as the contraction in the 1970s lasted right up until the point where our adversaries do begin to take advantage of it to a degree that Americans begin to notice and decide that it's dangerous. Right. I mean, to make the the cycle complete, it it is exactly the expansion that you're alluding to is the Soviet incursion into Afghanistan uh, that really uh, marks the end of that period and uh, uh, pulls the U.S. into a more direct confrontation with the Soviet Union during the 80s. Just to wrap things up here, uh, the American public, I mean, we've been talking, you know, we're all uh, high news consumers and, you know, reading a lot about uh, foreign affairs and caring deeply about defense matters. And I, I suspect that most of our listeners do, but that's not necessarily the case for the average American. The average American foreign affairs factor very little in their uh, presidential voting, let alone their their congressional or, or local voting. Uh, and Afghanistan prior to the withdrawal was already largely forgotten. You know, the military is what, 1% of the population. And of that, we had, uh, you know, at the time, 2,500, you know, even before then, only 10,000, 14,000 troops. How quickly do you think America will forget Afghanistan? Uh, it's already largely fallen off most of the uh, front pages of, of, of most of the main newspapers. You know, how, how it, se it seems like most Americans are, A, eager to put it behind them and, you know, B, that's that's the natural state of affairs is to, is to largely ignore what's going on around the world. Yeah, I'm not even sure I'd say they're eager to put it behind them. I think 80 percent of the American people had it not in front of them uh, since about to 2003 <laughs> to begin with. Right. Uh, and that's that's a sad commentary on, um, you know, the. Uh, many things, uh, you know, I, I think it's going to be out of sight until it isn't, <laughs> right? right? And so, right. Uh, you know, if Al I shouldn't even say if, as Al-Qaeda reconstitutes itself uh, in Afghanistan, uh, if it launches a major attack on the United States, people will be thinking about Afghanistan again. If there are uh, assaults of U.S. service people, as that already one has occurred in these refugee centers, uh, people will be thinking about Afghanistan. If if the Russians uh, take another bite out of Ukraine because they think that they can get away with it, uh, people might not think of Afghanistan directly, but that's what political campaigns are for. Uh, you know, there will be 30-second ads reminding them uh, about that. So I think... Uh, you know, it's not going to be in front of them every day. It's going to be to the back of their minds the way it was, uh, you know, for a long time before before the war ended. Uh, but uh, I think at, at the end of the day, uh, you can never count on it not reappearing uh, because there's a, there's a reason that we went there and now that reason is back. Uh, it's back in power. So uh, I wouldn't count on that smooth sailing from here on. It makes me think of we had uh, Phil Clay, the author of Missionaries, on last week, and 
uh, Phil said when people say thank you for your service for for being a veteran, uh, you know, he said the you know the one thing I would ask of them is to pay attention, is to be involved, is to is to make themselves knowledgeable about what's happening around the globe, what sacrifices are happening in their name. Uh, and hopefully, uh, if we take anything away from that, maybe, maybe a few more people will be paying attention, uh, on, in the long run. Uh, I think we will have to end it there for today. Andrew Bush, thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us. Absolutely. Thank you for asking me. Thanks, Andrew. Thank you, David. And thanks to our listeners. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen and leave us a review. It helps others find the podcast. And of course, be sure to check out realcleardefense.com for the latest news and opinion on military and defense and national security issues that matter. You can sign up to receive the Morning Recon, our daily newsletter summary of defense news. For David Craig and everyone else here at Real Clear Defense's Hot Wash, I'm John Sorensen.